Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Why don't you grab a hand and we're going to pray. Holy Spirit, we ask for wisdom <laughs> for y'all <laughs> and for me. And we pray, God, for you just to open our eyes. And Holy Spirit, you said that you lead us into all truth. And here we are reading the Bible, and you said you're the one who takes the Bible and makes it truth. So we pray that you would be the catalyst tonight, that we would have a truth encounter, that our eyes of our understanding would be open, and that our hearts would burn within us as we take this journey tonight to deeper revelation in you. Amen. I, I want to... Um, I want to talk about Jesus, the founder of the women's liberation movement. Judgment began with the house of God, and we saw several leaders in the, in the late 70s and 80s and 90s, spiritual leaders um, being uh, exposed for being immoral, and whole and mega church leaders were being exposed. It seemed like for a while, monthly, and I remember uh, a prophetic word that, that somebody gave. I was a young man in those days. That judgment begins with the house of God. And I feel like, not that the church is in any way perfect. Um, the Catholic church, the Protestant church, any church is perfect. Not that there will never be um, anyone else caught in some bad uh, sexual scheme. But I feel like the Lord is now judging. And when I say judging, I'm not talking about like judgment in the sense like sending people to hell. But exposing wickedness so that he can bring holiness. That's what I mean. And he's uh, obviously now doing that in the political realm and in business and Hollywood and media. And I actually feel it's the Lord. And I, I, I think the Me Too movement is the Lord. Now, how many of you know the enemy can always use, the enemy always, uh, his, if he can't stop you, then he tries to overemphasize something. So, I, you know, I want to be careful and not like correct something to the place I, that, I, that I'm not trying to. I'm saying, I think the Me Too movement, the core of it, the Lord is in the middle of it. That doesn't mean that anyone should endorse every single person who ever does anything with that. And, and I really believe it's a really good thing. And I, and I think that um, women should be protected. And I think, I, I think it's, uh, I, hope, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. But I do believe it's a, uh, that it's part of our job as men to protect our women and I think it ought to be part of a women's job to protect women too. So let's be clear. I've always been a protector of women and all of my team that are around me. Um, I think I've hired probably the most women. Um, I, I, I love working with women. I was raised by my mom. Of course, you know, my, my father drowned when I was three and I had two stepfathers who didn't like me. So I, I've, I connect well with women. But my mama, uh, she, she taught me to honor women. I wasn't allowed to go through a door before a woman. And if you're on my team now, you know I still have this thing. Because I remember one time my grandma, when I was 15 or 16, you know, a teenager, and you're, you're not, I mean, you learn all these things when you're little, but then you don't always remember them when, you, when your, you know, frontal lobe isn't working. <laughs> and I remember uh, coming, coming well, my, my mom and my grandmother and my sister, we were all in a car together. And when 
we, when we stopped at home, I was eager to something I was going to do, and I ran in the house, and my mother was inside first, and my grandmother was behind me, and I, I opened the door and went through the door before my grandmother and the, the, and the, uh, the uh, screen door slammed on my grandmother. It didn't hurt or anything, but I just looked up in time to see my mother's five-fold ministry. <laughs> she didn't say anything. She just whacked me. That was back when spankings were good. I was raised by them. And my mother just whacked me, and, and, uh, and I knew exactly what I had done. And I went outside and opened the door for my grandmother. Um, and, and I grew up in a house where if, there was, if, you, if you came in the, in the room and there was a woman sitting in an uncomfortable chair or on the floor, men got up and, and uh, asked women to sit there. And, and I always have taught that kind of honor in our school. And so I remember when my, my daughter wanted to date. She started dating my two daughters. I have two beautiful daughters, by the way. They're both in full-time ministry. How many know you're in full-time ministry? You may suck at it, but you're in it. You know what I'm saying? As soon as you meet Jesus. And I remember my daughter, um, my daughter was about 16, and she wanted to date this guy who was just brand new saved, brand new saved, out of juvenile hall. And in a foster home, and by the way, I don't want to be, you know, thrashed for that either. I, I, mean, we, I mean, we're in the people change business. That's the business we're in. And I think we need to remember that. We're, we're in the people change business. And I thank God God changed me because I don't know where I'd be without him. So I want to be clear, like, I believe people change. And I believe people change in foster homes and in juvenile halls and in jails. And there's no place that you can be that Jesus can't get to you. But I don't want an experiment with my daughter. So I want to say I believe that, but then I want to like, I want to relegate my risk to like very little with my daughter, especially my 16-year-old daughter. So she comes home one day and she says, Dad, I want to date, and I'll call him Henry. It wasn't Henry. She's like, Dad, I'd like to go out with Henry, and we're going to double date. And I'm like, Henry? You mean Henry? Like, I know Henry because Henry goes to our church the last two weeks. <laughs> Sits by the girls, which is, I'm like, is Henry... What's Henry doing? I'm not sure what Henry's doing. Is he, is he happy that he's saved or is he happy he's with the girls? I'm not really sure right now, but you know, dad's got this eye, right? I call it the eye of the tiger. All the dads know, right? She's like, dad, he's saved. I'm like, yeah. What, well, how do you know he's saved? Like he read the Bible once. I'm like, no, no, that ain't going to do it. You know? So she's, so she's like for two weeks, she's like, dad, he's really nice. And we're going to double date. He loves Jesus, you know, and every other sentence is he loves Jesus. And she knows the key word is Jesus. She wants to tie the name Jesus with Henry. So finally, I, I know, and Kathy, she's working me at night like, oh, honey, you know, they're going to the pizza parlor in a movie, you know, with two other couples. Oh, honey, what could happen? I'm like, oh, that's my problem. That's my problem right there. I'm a prophet and I see movies. So the ladies were working me, though. They were really working me. So, so I finally said, okay, listen, I have to meet him. She's like, Dad. I'm like, no, 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 no. I have to meet him. Dad. So they devised a plan that he would come to home group. Because, you know, he's a Christian. So... 
Henry comes to home group, I'll never forget as long as I live. <laughs> remember, this is the younger version of Chris. So, so my, my daughter brings Henry, and she's like, Dad, this is Henry. And Henry, is, he's visibly sweating. <laughs> he's the one I told you about. I'm like, hi, Henry. And I reach out my hand and takes to shake it. And he's like, hi, Mr. Val, Val Halton. <laughs> And I hang on to his hand. And I say to Henry, Henry, I heard you want to date my daughter. I still have his hand. He's like, yeah. Yes, sir. I said, that's good. Good. Well, now I want you to know that if you touch my daughter, I will break both your hands. And he goes, okay. I said, no, no. You think I'm kidding. No, I'm not kidding. If you touch my daughter, I will break both your arms. Then we will both be in jail. Anyway, let me just say, for those who are watching, that's not the right way to deal with it. Which, when I got in bed that night, I got another reprimand from my, my wife, who has much more wisdom than I. But um, that's what happens when your daughters first start to date. Like, you're not really sure what to do. My point is, is that I, I, I believe that it's our job to protect women. And I, I earnestly do. I've done it all my life. I wrote this book, Fashion to Rain, Empowering Women to Fulfill Their Divine Destiny, because I wanted to be a champion for women. So everything I said last week that didn't fit that, yeah, yeah, chuck that part. Now, the rest of the message was quite good, I think, maybe. And I don't plan on being politically correct, so if you're looking for politically correct messages, that wouldn't be me. But I do want to make sure that I, my heart is... Would someone like this book? Awesome. You can buy that, too. <laughs> can I give that to you? Yes. Why don't you come get this? Yes, you. Yeah. Awesome. God bless you. You're very welcome. Um, I wanted to uh, just share... I, this is a message that actually inspired that book. And actually, I preached this message in Pennsylvania... And uh, Chosen uh, Publishing was in the room. There was a, uh, a um, her name's Jane, Jane Campbell. She represents Chosen. And so she was in the room when we were preaching in this conference. At, uh, I believe it was Randy Clark conference. And I was speaking on Jesus is, the, Jesus is the women's liberation. He was the founder of the women's liberation movement. Now, not the feminist movement, but the women's liberation movement. It was another movement, really. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and afterwards, Jane came up and she said, that's a message everybody needs to hear. You really need to write a book about that. So it kind of inspired um, this, this uh, that book was actually inspired from this message. Um, before we go on, let me, let me say that in, in the book of Genesis, how many of you know that when God created Adam and the word Adam in Hebrew and the word man are the same? Do you know that? The word Adam and the word man are the same. And, when God, and Genesis chapter 1 says that God created Adam, both male and female. He created them in the image of God. He made them, and he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, and, fulfill the, and fill the earth, and subdue it. So God made Adam both male and female. Are you following me at all? And what I'm getting at is that God, it takes a male and a female to actually represent the nature of God. Because God made Adam both male and female. How many understand if you oppress women, then you lose half 
the revelation of the nature of God. Because God is not a man. God is both male and female. And in the, um, in the garden, you, as you know, some people say things like, well, Eve was made as a helpmate because God was looking for a helpmate for Eve. And the word helpmate there is a word that is used three times for a woman and 13 times for God. So if you think that God was creating uh, like a slave, then you misunderstand the word because God calls himself that 13 times what he calls a woman three times. So God wasn't looking for a slave. And then, as you know, when God, um, create, when God put Adam to sleep and took the woman out of the man, he didn't take the woman out of his head or out of his foot. He took her out of his side. And the point is, is that she was made to stand alongside of him, not under him, not over him, but beside him. Some would, um, some would argue that, um, that Adam, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, that Adam was in charge of the garden. Well, first of all, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Adam was in charge of the garden. But it, there, it is very interesting who the devil came to speak to. He came to speak as a serpent. He came to speak to the woman. He's the one in chapter 3 of Genesis who says, Has God said you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And she said, Eve said, No, we can eat from any tree, of the gar- any tree in the garden except for this one tree. We can't eat it or touch it, lest we die. And the devil began to negotiate with her. And so you go, well, that's because she was more easily deceived. And I'm like, okay, let me ask you a question. Who did Adam listen to? So Adam, Eve, the devil came to Eve to get access to the garden. But how many understand that Eve, that Adam listened to Eve? I'm saying, if it, I'm saying one of the things that I love to do is it's called the principle of first mention. When, whenever there's a subject in the Bible, we, I always like to go back to the first time it's mentioned because that lays the foundation for everything else God's saying about that subject. And my point is, is that when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, they were co-laboring, they were co-reigning, and they had co-authority. The, the devil came to Eve or he came as a serpent to Eve uh, because he knew that Eve had authority. And how do we know that he knew Eve had authority? Because Adam actually listened to Eve instead of to God. So I'm saying Eve was very esteemed in the garden. In, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, after they fell, you know, God comes into the garden. And, um, and the Bible describes that God used to come into the garden in the cool of the day. And it says, when they heard God in the garden. And I... I, I imagine that when God came in the garden, well, as, as a matter of fact, the psalmist depicts God, that when God, when God walks, that the earth shakes. And I imagine that God's in the garden and he's walking and there's earthquakes, good earthquakes. You know, there's good earthquakes and bad earthquakes, right? I mean, when Jesus was in the tomb, it was an earthquake that released him. <laughs> Just a thought. And God's walking through the garden and, the, and, and as he does in the cool of the day, and the earth is trembling, and the, and the animals and the birds and all the creatures, they're all coming to God like when I come home and Sammy meets me at the front door. I mean, he's happy. He's wagging his tail. He's like, oh, dad's home. And I imagine that when Adam and Eve fell, that suddenly God comes into the garden, and instead of creation greeting God, they're all suddenly afraid of God. And God says to Adam, where are you? 
How many know if God can't find you really lost? <laughs> and Adam says, I, you know, I was naked and afraid. Then God begins to interact with him. But this is the part I want to I, I, I highlight for this message. God begins to talk to the to this serpent, and he says to the serpent, because you deceived the woman from this day on, you will crawl on the ground and eat dust. And he, said, he goes on to say, and I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, in between your seed and her seed. And in, and in the Hebrew it says, and, and he, speaking of, it's a prophetic word about Jesus, he will stomp you so hard, he will stomp your head so hard, he will crush your head and bruise his heel. But I, I, I like this part because... I didn't realize it till maybe a couple of months before I was writing the book that the curse over the serpent was I'm going to make the woman eternally mad at you. That wasn't the curse over the woman. Come on, men who are married, you understand this, right? The curse over the serpent was I'm going to make the woman eternally mad at you. Isn't it interesting to me? And, and she will teach her seed her seed, she will, you, she will, there will be enmity between her seed and your seed. And he will, you will bruise him on the hill and he will crush your head. And the point of the Hebrew passage there is that the woman is going to, be etern- is going to eternally hate you and she's going to teach her children to, to, to war against you. Have you ever wondered why every culture figures out some way to reduce women? Have you, have you ever wondered why nearly every religion figures out some way to put men over women. I'd like to suggest that the devil knows that if women get their rightful place in the earth, he's in trouble because she's the one who's eternally angry with him. Think about this. Everywhere I go, if you call for the intercessors, you say, hey, we'd like to do an intercessor training. What percentage of the intercessors are women? I'm not stereotyping anyone. I'm just telling you my experience. If you say, I'd love to speak to the intercessors, what percentage of the intercessors are women? I can tell you it's over 80%. If I say, I'd like to speak to the prophetic people, what percentage of the prophetic people are women? Everywhere, including Bethel. And I'm, I, I, you're saying, well, women are more spiritual. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there is something about something that God did in them that the enemy knows if they get their rightful place to stand next to men, how many know we need patriarchs and we need matriarchs? If they get their rightful place, he's in trouble because they're the ones that are actually carry the DNA of, we hate you, and we're teaching our children to hate you. I'm right about this. I'd like to point out uh, one more thing before we leave the Old Testament. The curse over the woman, the curse over the woman was you will have more pain in childbirth, increased pain in childbirth, and your husband will rule over you, but your desire will still be for him. Now, this is kind of important for this reason. In the Hebrew, there is one word for woman and one word for wife. Two separate words. Are you with me? And there's one word for husband, and there's one word for man. Are you following me? But in the Greek, there's only a one word for wife and woman, and only one word for man and husband. 
Now, it's really good that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And I'll tell you why. Because otherwise, the translators would have the opportunity to determine whether they think that word should be wife or woman. Are you with me? But in the Old Testament, the curse over the woman, the curse. So this is like what? The worst case scenario, right? And remember, Jesus beat the curse on the cross. So maybe I should take you the New Testament so nobody gets mad. But the curse over the woman was you will have increased pain in childbirth and your, your desire will be for your husband, but he, your husband, will rule over you. I'm saying the curse wasn't all men will rule all women. Even in the curse. God didn't say, okay, Eve, you're cursed, and from this day forward, all women will be ruled by all men because they're so much smarter. No, it was, listen, your husband will rule you, and here's part of the curse, but you'll still want him. So you won't be like, I don't want a husband, they rule us. The curse was, even though they rule you, you'll still want a husband. Are you with me? How many know when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the curse? Are you following me? He broke the curse off of creation, off of men, and off of women. So we don't live under that curse. But my point is, is isn't it funny that the New Testament church is also more awful, awful. Often, thank you, that's why my PA is in the front row. Often more restrictive than the Old Testament. Okay, thank you, Chris. This is going to be a fun sermon. I can see this. So now let's fast forward to the New Testament. Between Malachi and Matthew is 400 years. The Protestants call it the years of silence. The Catholics don't agree because they have some books in those years, but that's not really our subject. From Malachi to Matthew is 400 years. And in those 400 years, another religion emerges. It's called Judaism. Now, if you're like me, you probably thought Judaism was what they called the Old Testament, you know, the the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the, the, the working out of the religion of the Old Testament. But it's really not true. You notice that in the New Testament, we have Pharisees and scribes. Do you notice there's no Pharisees and scribes in the Old Testament? Because the Pharisees and scribes were the people who developed this religion called Judaism. And, and, and I, I wish I, maybe I have the statistics here. I don't think I do, though. It's another set of notes. Uh, yeah, in, in the Old Testament, if you took all the laws of the Old Testament, there was about 217. Now, that includes the Ten Commandments, all Levitical laws. I'm sorry, I think there was 247. If you took all Levitical laws all the Old Testament laws, all you get everything about the eating, everything, right? There was about 247. But the, by the time Jesus walked the earth, there were 617. There were 617 laws. Now, here's what's interesting for, uh, for us tonight is that 100 of those laws were written against women. The Pharisees and the scribes hated women. I'm going to read you a little piece of what I wrote. In first century Israel, there was no people group more oppressed than women. How many know Jesus came to set the oppressed free? How many know when he came to set the oppressed free in Israel, there wasn't black people, there wasn't Latinos, there wasn't Asian people. The oppressed people in the days of Christ were women. Are you with me? 
They were considered second-class citizens akin to slaves. They had virtually no rights, no respect, and no voice. They were, they were the property, they were actually the legal property of men. They were allowed little or no formal education. If a family had young boys and girls, the boys went off to school to be educated while the girls stayed home with their mother. Like the women of Afghanistan, the Jewish women were forbidden to speak to men in public, and they were required to veil their faces whenever they left their homes. If a woman was caught unveiled in public, it was grounds for divorce. They kept house, they took care of their children, and they served at the will of their husbands. If a man came over the house for dinner, the woman had to eat in another room. A woman was not allowed to eat in, at the table of a man unless it was her husband or her, or her sons. So if a man came over, if, if her husband invited guests over, she couldn't eat in the room that the men were in. Their fathers arranged most of their marriages, so they rarely married the man of their dreams. The best they could hope for was someone who treated them better than their fathers. To make matters worse, uh, polygamy was legal for men, not for women. So most women shared their husbands with other wives. If their husbands got tired of them for any reason, they divorced them and discarded them like used rags. Jewish women could not vote. In fact, they had no political voice for what, whatsoever. A woman couldn't even be a uh, a woman couldn't even be a witness in a court case because the Pharisees believed that they were inherently liars. Judaism was stricter in the Old Testament. Judaism was stricter than the Old Testament law with respect to women. Women were relegated to the outer court. There was four. There was four uh, levels to come into the synagogue. They were relegated to the outer court and most often not allowed to read the Torah, the Scriptures. One of the first-century rabbis named Elzer said, "I'd rather." Uh, I'd rather burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. His, command, his comments depict the religious communities of that day. In fact, the women could not even recite the evening or the morning prayer. This is, this is really uh, interesting. And I'm going to just give you a, one more little piece of this, um, which we really are not going like, to dive into tonight because of, for the sake of time. But um, do you know that, Jesus, that the Bible in the New Testament, covers three people groups. It was written to three people groups. Like if you look at the epistles, it was written to three people groups. It was written to Romans, to Jews, and to Greeks. So you might be interested in this because um, the books that were written to the Romans have no correction for women. You don't have a book written to Romans that corrects a woman or in any way restricts her from teaching or exercising authority. Do you, do you know why? Because the Romans, well, first of all, the, the Jews were the most restrictive. I just told you about Jewish culture. The Roman women could actually buy and sell property, and they could also be witnesses in court cases. They were still legally, they were still the property of men, but in a much more kind of opened way. And they were not as, they, so they could have businesses, they could make money, and they could even work jobs. The Greeks actually made gods out of women. So the Greeks did the polar opposite. How many of you have read the book of Thessalonica? Thessalonia is a, is a Greek goddess. That's a Greek city. That's the name of a Greek god. And you'll notice that the only place... So, so Paul and the apostles, they wrote to three people groups. They wrote to the Jews, they wrote to the Greeks, and they wrote to the Romans. When there, when, you'll notice that the only correction around women, the only place that women are restricted or seem to be restricted in, every, in any way, 
are always Greek books in Greek cities. For instance, Corinth, because Corinth wasn't just a Greek city. It was a Greek city with a woman God. Uh, Timothy was, when Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus had the goddess Diana. So the Greek, this, that city was not just a Greek city. It was a Greek city with a woman God of the city. The head God of the Greek city was actually a woman. And then Creed, when Paul writes to Titus, Titus is on the island of Creed. And Creed is also a Greek city or a Greek island. And it also has a Greek goddess as its senior god. You know, you understand the Greeks had lots of gods, right? And so those three cities were the only cities in which Paul writes to them and says anything at all about women. And do you understand that, those, that the letters that we now comprise as a Bible, they were written to specific people groups. Are you guys okay? You're giving me that look. You're like, are you in like board mode or are you in learning mode? So I'll just give you like a little insight. Do you notice that when Paul writes to Timothy, he says that a woman will be saved through childbirth? Have you ever read that scripture? Well, I'm just giving you like a little insight. Like you kind of have to know history to understand what Paul was saying because uh, Timothy was the apostle, senior apostle at the church of Ephesus and they had, uh, and they had Diana who was the, god, the goddess of fertility. She was multi-breasted and women would travel to the city of Ephesus when they were about to give birth to their babies. And the reason is, is because first century women often died in childbirth. And the goddess, uh, this goddess Diana, one of, one of the things she did is that she supposedly, as a Greek goddess, she protected women while they were, having, while they were giving birth. So a lot of the women would not convert to Christianity because they were afraid that they would die in childbirth. So Paul says to them that if a woman, if a woman, if a woman loves God and walks uprightly, they will be saved through childbirth. In other words, they didn't have to serve the goddess Diana to be saved through childbirth because Jesus would save them in childbirth. So these are, are you with me? Would you like to know a little bit more about this? Um, in, in, the, in, in Greek mythology, women were more powerful than men uh, for two reasons. One is the Greeks said that the, that the matriarch, the mother, was born before the father because how would the father be born if there wasn't a woman? And the second thing, and the second reason is because they said because a man's sex drive is typically higher than a woman's, a woman always has something that a man, a woman always has something that a man wants, but a man does but a man doesn't always have something a woman wants. Therefore, therefore, yeah, I know, I'm just, I'm reporting. You can't make this stuff up. You're like, Chris said, no, 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 I'm reporting. This is history. I'm not going to apologize next week for this. This is, I didn't say, I think any of this. I'm just telling you what they believe. Mm. So you'll notice, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, that Paul talks about, order. He said first there was God and Christ and, and Christ was under God and then man was under Christ and woman was under man. Why does Paul even talk about birth order? He, I mean, uh, order of, yeah, birth order. Because the Greeks, he's writing to the Corinthians who are Greeks. Are you with me? 
And the Greeks make women in charge of everything because they believe they were born first. So Paul corrects the order of birth. Adam came before Eve is the point. And Paul's saying to the, to the Corinthians, if, you're making, if you believe your women should rule men because they were born first, you even got that wrong. And that's why twice in Titus and in Corinthians, or in Timothy and in Corinthians, that Paul talks about who, what happened first. Not because he cares, but because they cared. Does that make sense? And so now let's go to Jesus. When Jesus walked the earth, as I said just a few minutes ago, there was no people group more oppressed than women. And Jesus came to set the oppressed free. Now, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, and we should probably read the Bible. Verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, speaking of Jesus, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to him, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But the only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, this is a very interesting passage. Let me tell you a little bit about what's happening from history. First of all, it is illegal to teach a woman the Torah. I'm not saying it's like it's doctrinally wrong. I'm saying it is illegal to teach the woman a Torah. So one of the things you're going to notice in, the, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that when they talk about Jesus teaching the multitudes, they say there was 5,000 men and there was women and children. I used to read it like this. There was 5,000 men and there were some women and children. But that's not what the gospel writers want you to catch. They're saying there was 5,000 men and there was women. Jesus was teaching illegally women. And they were gathered to him by the thousands. The gospel writer isn't trying to number the men. He's trying to remind you that women and children were there because they haven't been taught for 400 years. Are you with me? The Pharisees and the scribes did not teach women. They made it illegal to teach a woman. But everywhere Jesus taught, every gospel writer several times in the gospels repeat, and women were in the crowd. Are you with me? Have you heard the story of the woman who was, had the issue of blood? Do you remember that story? Do you have any idea what's really happening there? See, when a woman was on her cycle... She was unclean. And if she had to go out of her house for an emergency, and it had to be an emergency, she had to walk down the street saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. Are you with me? This woman had a menstrual cycle that never stopped. She sneaks into the crowd because she is not supposed to be out of her house for obvious reasons. And if she's in a crowd, she's supposed to be yelling, unclean. And while she yells unclean, people scatter like she's a leper. Are you with me? In other words, the whole idea was to demean women. This woman slips slips into the crowd. She's like, if I could just touch Jesus, I'll be well. You know the story, right? She touches Jesus. Her period stops for the first time in obviously years, right? She knows she's healed and she tries to slip away. Why does she try to slip away? Because she's not supposed to be out 
if she's on her cycle, which never ends. Jesus knows exactly what's going on, and he is in your face with the Pharisees everywhere he goes. So he says, come and tell them what happened to you. (laughs) Jesus is making a point everywhere he goes. He's come to set the oppressed free, and there's nobody more oppressed than women. He goes to, to Mary and Martha's house. I wish I had more time. And Mary... Martha is doing what the law requires her, not not Jewish law, Judaism. It requires her to wait on the men and act like it's in a servitude sort of way. And Mary is doing what's completely illegal and culturally wrong. She's sitting at Jesus' feet and Jesus is teaching a woman. And Martha comes in. I love Martha, by the way. I love Martha. Martha's always mad in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? She's always mad about something. And Mary's kind of like chillax. She's like, I don't know. I don't want to name names because then people will write me about that. (laughs) But Martha is like, do you know what I mean? Martha is like, que It's all good. Chillax. Mary's like, she's like, get her done. And she's a black and white justice thinker. So she tells Jesus, Though I said it wrong, huh? Martha, Martha, Martha's the justice thinker. Sorry, Mary. God bless you. Everybody knew. Everybody's like, it's the opposite way. You misspoke again. You're going to have to have another sermon to apologize for what you just did. So Mary is listening at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is mad she's she's like this is wrong this is against the law she's a she's a rule keeper and 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 she's making dinner and she's not getting help and that's all wrong too and jesus turns to her and says mary's chose the better thing is jesus saying listen uh i don't value hard work especially that cooking thing that you all do no no he's saying mary listen to this it's time to receive. Martha, it's time to receive. Mary's got it. Martha, come over here and sit down and receive. Martha has no grid for what this man is trying to do. And remember, Martha's a keep the rules person. And she's like, are we breaking the rules? Isn't this wrong? And Jesus is like, Mary has chose the better thing. I want to teach you. And he begins to teach Martha and Mary. Well, I love the story. I, I wish I had time. It, it would take about five hours to do this whole teaching. That's, I don't know, 60 pages of notes. But let's go to John chapter 11. I'll try to give you a couple more highlights before we finish. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Now, get this. You're going you're gonna to read the Bible completely different when I get done teaching tonight. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Listen to this. The village, are you there? John 11, 1. The village of what? Mary and her sister Martha. Remember, women can't own stuff? Jesus just depicted that Lazarus was sick, but the village was owned by Martha and Mary. You didn't get that. I'm saying John... The gospel writers were in your face all through the gospels, but if you don't know history, you don't get it. 
If you will, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but think of 1955 and the civil rights movement, before the civil rights movement, and we're talking about black people and white people. When, if, if we were, if I wrote to my wife in 1955 and said, hey, we had 400 people here and there was 50 African Americans, how many know, that would be like, what are the African Americans doing there? I mean, do you understand how that would stick out? Like, oh my goodness, black people were in the congregation. Are you with me? If I said to you, and in, 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 during, the slave, in, during slavery, if I would say to you, and the village was owned by, and I named a slave. You'd be like, how did he get ownership of that? I'm saying, the, the gospel writers are telling you everywhere. And a woman owned that. And women were there. And Jesus forgave the women. And who were the Pharisees bringing to Jesus? It was the woman caught in adultery. Where was the man? There wasn't a man there because the Pharisees weren't mad at men. They were mad at women because they knew that Jesus was on a mission to set the captives free. And they had written a hundred laws against women and Jesus was breaking them all. So there was a man who was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha and her sister Mary. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, this sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Do you know that Jesus is only quoted as saying he loved three people? No, how many know Jesus loved the world? Please don't. I'm saying that specifically, there's, I'm sorry, there's four. John, only in the book of John. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are the only four people that are actually specifically told that Jesus loved them. Now, Jesus loves you also. Don't get insecure. But my point is, isn't it interesting that two of them are women? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What a friend we have in Jesus. I love praying to Jesus. Well, sometimes I'll let you die. Have you ever felt Jesus was late? Anyone, does Jesus ever come late? No, I mean, we all know he's not late, but have you ever thought he was late? Yeah, you're like, Lord, my brother is sick. Okay, well, let's wait till he's dead. Because he's my friend. I love Lazarus. <laughs> then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. And he goes through this whole thing. They think that he's gonna, you know, Jesus is going to die there. And he's like, oh, Laz no, Lazarus is actually dead. So verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he was already in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come out to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. When Martha, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now, even now, I know that whenever you ask God, he will give you. I love this. When Martha called for Jesus four days ago, 
It's two days journey, but it takes Jesus four days to get there because he waits two days for Lazarus to be dead. Martha's figured out the number. She's pretty good at math. So when she hears Jesus is on the way, she walks out two miles to meet him. And when she meets him, she doesn't say, hello, shalom. Oh, long live the king. She's like, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And the connotation is, where the heck have you been? And then she goes, but even now, whatever you ask God, I know who to do for you. And her point is, you can still fix this. This is Martha, everywhere in the Bible. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Listen to this. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Listen to her. She said, yes, Lord, I have, past tense, believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he that even comes to the world. Listen to this. Martha understands the resurrection. Where did she get that from? She said, he said, I am the resurrection. He goes, I, she says, I know that my brother will live. And she's having this conversation. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And she says, I have past tense already believed that. How did she know about the resurrection? How many of the Old Testament doesn't talk too much about the resurrection? But all of a sudden she has this great revelation on the resurrection. Because Jesus is teaching women. He's gathering them in groups. He's on a hillside. He's got 10,000 people. 5,000 of them are men. And we have women and children. He's meeting with them privately in homes. And what's he doing everywhere he goes? He's teaching them and healing them. I love this part. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life, da, 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 da. Do you believe this? She said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the son of God. When she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, secretly, listen to this, secretly saying, the teacher is here. Secretly, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. Did you notice she didn't call him Savior, Lord, God, or even Jesus? She said, the teacher. It was illegal to teach women. So Jesus was famous with women as being the teacher. Not the apostle, not the savior of the world. Women loved Jesus because he was their teacher because they hadn't been taught for 400 years. Listen to this. The teacher is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. This is Mary. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when she saw that Mary had got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. Now, you have to understand, Mary falls down for everything. <laughs> have you ever noticed? Like, this is Mary. She just falls. Martha's always mad. Mary's always in a puddle of tears on the ground, usually wiping Jesus' feet with something, tears or oil or pouring oil. She's just like, she's just at a very emotional kind of passionate, woo, woo. Does anyone get the woo? Don't you love that sisters are opposites? 
and that Jesus connects to Martha where Martha lives and connects to Mary where Mary lives. Oh, listen to this. I almost messed this up. Listen to this. Therefore, when Mary came to Jesus, she saw him fell on his feet and said, Lord, if you'd, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But hers is an accusational. You'll notice Jesus gives her no scriptures. <laughs> She's just like, oh, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's no accusation. It's not like you taught us there's a resurrection and you didn't come You're four days late. What's going on? There's none of that. Jesus, there, Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus, and then Jesus wept. And the next verse, Martha's telling Jesus, I wouldn't open that grave like he's been dead four days. It's gonna stink by now. You know, if he would have come two days, he's probably already dead, but at least I wouldn't have stinketh. Now think about this with me for a minute. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, how did, when did he know he was going to raise Lazarus? Like, maybe was he coming to the tomb? He thought, well, man, I got this idea. The father wants me to raise him. No, no. Remember, four days earlier, when he gets the message that Lazarus is sick, he tells the disciples he's going to let him die so he can raise him from the dead. I'm just trying to make a point. Are you with me? So Jesus knows, logically, he's going to raise Lazarus in four days. So Martha's mad. Mary's upset. And Mary's crying. What does Jesus do with Martha when Martha's like throwing scriptures at him? You said. (laughs) Jesus meets her with scriptures. I am the resurrection life. And he explains to her the resurrection in probably the most profound verses in the Bible on the resurrection. Unless until you get to the book of Romans, right? I mean, it's profound what she knows. He meets her where she needs to be met. But Mary cries. Now, Jesus could go, hey, takes off his shirt. There's a big S. Here I am. Quiet down. Can we mallow, please? Ladies, ladies, ladies. Not necessary. Not necessary. Going to raise the boy in just a minute. Can, you, can, we, can we not have all the weeping? Can we stop it, please? It's a little illogical. I've come to raise the dead. I mean, he could have done that, right? He, he knows he's going to raise the dead, right? But instead, it says... And when he saw all the women weeping, he was what? Troubled in spirit, and he wept. You don't even know what that means, do you? See, men weren't allowed to weep in public. It was woman's work. Women wept, and the Pharisees believed that they wept because they were weak. And Jesus wept not because he didn't know that he was going to raise Lazarus, but because he was saying to every mother's daughter everywhere, I get you. I understand you. Listen, I am with you. I get your grief. He mourns with them before he rejoices with them because he's doing more than raising Lazarus. He's creating value for things that the ice castle Vulcan planet would not allow. The church was a men's, it wasn't even the church, of course, but religion was a men's club before Jesus showed up. And Jesus is wrecking their men's club.
John 12 is really interesting. <laughs> Lazarus has rose from the dead, and Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. Of course, Martha was serving. <laughs> and Lazarus was reclining at the table. He was eating. And what is Mary doing? Okay, here we go. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, and she anoints Jesus' feet with her hair and pours out the fragrance and Judas is like, oh, this could have been sold. And Mary is doing what Mary does, just things that seem totally irrational. She just poured $60,000 worth of perfume over Jesus' feet while she's crying again. (laughs) Now, in fairness to Judas, Luke tells us that all the disciples said, what a waste of money. And they're like, illogical, stupid, passion, doesn't make sense. Facts, please, ladies. Can we have the facts? We could have sold this. And uh, Judas, how much would that have been? $60,000. Look at all the people we could have fed. This is crazy, illogical, stupid. And Jesus said, yeah, well, let me tell you a little secret. Every place this gospel is preached, you will mention this story and Mary. You know why? I love extravagant I have a value for things you think are illogical. And Jesus rebukes his disciples for taking on the religious spirit that only values logic and reason. I'm not saying it's illogical. You understand. I'm saying it seems to be illogical, and Jesus moves it into the realm of reasonable. I think I'm going to end with this one. This is one of my favorites. Turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 37. There was a woman who was a sinner. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, that word sinner isn't your normal word sinner. It means she was a prostitute or it had to do with being immoral, sexually immoral. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial full of perfume. And standing behind him, behind Jesus, uh, standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would have known what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, for she is a prostitute or some kind of a sexual sinner. Now, before we go on, this is really interesting. See, This is when Jesus was really popular, and the Pharisees and Jesus did not get along. Usually when Jesus went over a Pharisee's house, he usually had the Pharisee for dinner, right? So it's kind of like, you Pharisees are whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones, pass the spaghetti. So this Pharisee's name is Simon, and I'd like to give Simon some credit. I mean, I'd propose that he had to have, he had to be pretty courageous to have Jesus and 12 disciples, including Peter, over for dinner. (laughs) So let's give Simon some credit. He's doing something that's pretty, you know, it's pretty risky. Now, if you have someone famous over for dinner, or even someone you really respect, and especially if you don't know them really well, do you like everything to go really well? I mean, aren't you like, you vacuum a little bit more, you clean just a little bit better, and you tell the kids, if you spill the milk tonight, you're going to die. Look in my eyes. You understand that? Die. Right? You just want things to go well, right? So just think about this. So Jesus, 
the Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner, and you know, and there's you know, twelve disciples, and and there's the Pharisee, and you know, I'm sure there's some servants. This is probably a fairly large house. It's a pretty big dinner deal, right? I mean, we didn't have microwaves in those days, and so on and so forth. This was a pretty big ordeal. And Jesus comes and sits down, and a prostitute comes in the house. Now, my, my thoughts are that, that Simon is first thinking, I hope Jesus doesn't think she got here early. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> because the, the Pharisees were also known to not be moral people. So Jesus is sitting there, and a, and, the, and a prostitute comes in. Now, remember the rules? A woman can't be in the room while the men are eating. So, so we have a whole bunch of rules being broken here. This woman walks in without knocking. How would you like to have Bill Johnson over, you know, and, and maybe his family, and a prostitute walks in the house? And, and it's like, you know, oh, this, you know. And then, and then she doesn't sit over in the corner and just, like, weep and watch. Jesus is eating, and she goes right in, falls down by the table. Women aren't supposed to even be in here. And she's weeping and washing her, his feet with her tears. And Jesus still like, pass the corn. <laughs> Jesus behaving as if this is all like normal. <laughs> Do you ever notice that? Do you ever notice how many times women break in to the house, norm, mostly prostitutes? break into the house when Jesus is eating and do this? This is, not, this is not the first time. Like, this is a repeated story. I don't mean this woman. I mean, this idea is repeated through the other gospels, several of the other gospels. I don't want to stop for a minute. Do you have any idea why Jesus was so connected to the women of the night, so to speak? Remember, Jesus's mother had Jesus before she was married And of course, she said, oh, well, Joe and I, we haven't, you know, got together. Like, I'm a virgin. <laughs> Do you know how many virgins have had children? <laughs> like in the last 6,000 years? You know how many people there are on the planet? I mean, right now, there's what, 7.2 or 3 million, billion, I mean, people and you think, how many people has been from the beginning of time? I don't know, 10, 12 billion maybe? I mean, what's the chances that a virgin is going to get pregnant? I mean, now you're like, you know, scientifically possible, but not very high. Like one in 7.4 billion or something. And Mary's running around like, we didn't have sex. We didn't have sex. I got pregnant. The Holy Spirit came over me and boom, I'm pregnant. Do you know that nobody believed that story, including Joseph, until the angel took Joseph aside and said, she's not lying. Nobody else believed that story. And that's why the Pharisees said to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. Because they believed that he was. And remember, this was not 1955. This is the first century. You know what they did with women who got pregnant outside of wedlock? They stoned them. I'm saying Jesus had the reputation of being pregnant by a woman who was either a prostitute or a loose woman. I'd suggest that women who had those kind of issues hung around Jesus' house because they connected with mama. 
who tried to explain many times, like, no, we didn't. Whatever, Mary, we all know. So Jesus is at, you get the idea, right? Jesus is at the table, and, and every time, Je- not every time, oftentimes when Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, a prostitute breaks in and cries and weeps and, and does stuff, you know, and pours oil on his feet and, and, or, or, or wipes his hair with her, wipes his feet with her hair, and he's, she's weeping and she's doing, and this is like, this is Jesus, go everywhere Jesus goes, women love him. They haven't been taught for 400 years. They could give a rip what the rules are. This is a movement. So Simon says to himself, if this guy were really a prophet, he'd know this woman was a prostitute. And Jesus answers him. Remember, Simon didn't say anything. He just thought it. It's a little scary being around Jesus. You're like, think nothing. (laughs) And Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A money changer had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were both unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Let me tell you one more thing. When a Pharisee encountered a woman, one of the ways they demeaned her is to pretend she wasn't in the room. They didn't just ignore them. They intentionally would not look at them. So when Jesus says, do you see this woman? He wasn't saying, do you see this woman? He was saying, Simon, look at this woman. Acknowledge that she has value is the point. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has not, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kisses. But she, since the time, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, like you, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Let me tell you a little bit what's happening here. He says to Simon, when I came into your house, you did not wash my feet, which, by the way, is one of your 617 laws. When I come into your house, you're supposed to wash my feet. You thought I didn't notice, but I did. And when I came into into your house, You did anoint my head with oil, which is another one of the 617 things you were supposed to do. Anoint a person with oil when you bring him in as a guest. But you didn't do that, and you thought I missed it. And when I came into your house, you gave me no kisses. And the Pharisees never kiss anybody. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I don't like this ice castle you call a church. I value kisses and perfume and passion And what you think is illogical, I love it. And Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, this Vulcan planet you call a church, this men's club, I don't like that. I have a high value for what this woman's doing. And you gave me no kisses and you should have kissed me.
It was the woman who was caught in adultery, as I said a few minutes ago. It was the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman. Oh, I'm sorry, I said I'd be done. John 4, 5, I'm going to give you this a little bit. So he, Jesus came to a city called Samaria, of Samaria called Sychar, which was a parcel of, of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Not only was she a woman, but on top of that, she was a Samaritan, which were considered half-breeds. Are you with me? Very prejudiced against the Jews couldn't stand Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God or whom it was who said to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. She said to me, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it himself. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I give them shall never thirst, but the water I give them will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, give me this water. Then I may drink and not come all this way and never be thirsty and not have to come all this way to draw. I want to stop for a minute. Did you notice what the woman did? She went from, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. We shouldn't be talking to our father gave us this well. She just said, at first she says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and we're not, you're not supposed to be talking. You're breaking the rules. You're breaking the law. You're not supposed to be talking to me. And Jesus goes, yeah, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask, and I give you living water. And she said, "You're not better. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you?" And instantly she goes from, "You're our inner. You, it's you. It's it's us and them to, it's us and." <laughs> and she says to him, "Our father Jacob," and she instantly connects her roots back to Jacob. And Jesus begins to talk to her. And I love this. You know, we're. Um, uh, I, was, I was trying to keep from reading the whole thing to you. Jesus tells her, um, you know, he has this spiritual talk with her, and she begins to interact with him. The woman said to her, give me some of this, give me some of this water. Jesus said to her, um, the woman said, answered, said, oh, I'm sorry. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This is, you have said truly. And the woman said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Look at the, the rest of the verse. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. Men ought to worship. I love this. Um, I got this wrong. Do you know when Jesus said, you've had five husbands? He wasn't exposing her sin. He was exposing her rejection. Do you understand that women could not divorce men? Only men could divorce women. He wasn't saying, you've had all these men, and you are kind of, you're, you're, like, you're like an immoral woman. You're right, you don't even have a husband. And the one you're with right now, the you, one you're living with, he's not even your husband. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, I get that you've been rejected by men, and the one you have right now, he won't even marry you. 
Five men have divorced you, thrown you out like a rag. And the one you're with right now, he won't even marry you. When she said, I perceive you're a prophet, she wasn't saying, oh, you told me all the bad things I'm doing. She said, you connect it with my pain. You are a man and you connect with my pain. Jesus was not demeaning her. He was connecting with her. She goes in Jerusalem. She, I'm sorry, he, you know, he, he does all this stuff with her and tells her more about her life. And then she goes into the city of Samarita, Samara, Samaria and she tells them, all that Jesus told her. And the whole city comes out. Do you realize that the Samaritan woman was the first evangelist? She went out and evangelized the whole city before there was even a resurrection. And it says all Samaria came out. And they listened to the words of Jesus and they said this. This is their commentary. No longer do we believe because of what you told us. Now we believe because we've seen it ourselves. Is that fun? Are you bored? You want me to give you one more? Luke 15, would you turn there and I'll finish with this for sure. Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So... He told them, so he told them a parable. Now, let me stop for a minute so that you pick up what's going on. Tax collectors and sinners are following Jesus. Hello? Tax collectors and sinners are following Jesus. They're not following the Pharisees or the scribes. So they're, 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 they're murmuring about Jesus. Oh, the tax all the sinners follow Jesus. Da, da, da. We don't have sinners in our congregation. We don't want sinners. So it says, because they said that, Jesus told them three parables. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and one is lo- and lost one of them, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture to go after the one which is lost? And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." I tell you that there. It, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who, have, who need no repentance. Okay, so let's just start for a minute. So who is the, the Pharisees? Are you bored? I'm sorry. Long sermon. Who are the Pharisees mad at? Jesus. For what reason? Because he's reaching sinners and tax collectors. So Jesus tells them a story, right? So there's 99 in the story. There's a man... There's a, a shepherd who goes out after the 99. I mean, leaves the 99 and goes after the one, right? Okay, so in the story, who is the 99? It's the Pharisees who think they're righteous. Who's the one? It's the sinner who they don't like. Are, are you following me? And who is the shepherd that goes out after him? God. So the, he's saying to the Pharisees, it's the nature of God to go out after the one sinner, and then the angels rejoice more over one sinner then the 99, that would be you guys who think you're too righteous. Okay. Okay. The third story, I'm going to tell you the second one. But the third story is in, Luke, is in uh, the same chapter. And Jesus tells them a story about a man who has two sons. Now, you guys know the story. It's a prodigal son story. So I'm not going to read the whole story. But the story has three characters, right? It has the prodigal son who asked for this inheritance. You remember this? 
and he uses his inheritance on prostitutes. He has, and the story includes a father, right? And an elder brother. Because the story isn't called the prodigal son story in the Bible. It's called the story of two sons. Okay, you with me? Okay, so in the story, because Jesus told the story, because they didn't like the fact that Jesus had sinners and tax collectors with them, who does the prodigal son represent? The sinners that they're mad at, right? Who does the father represent in the story? God, right? And who does the elder brother represent? Them. Jesus went, uh, I'm sorry, God went out after the son that was the prodigal. He gives him a robe, ring, and sandals. He restores his, he gives him a robe. He restores his identity. He gives him a ring. He restores his authority. He gives him sandals. He restores his purity, right? But the elder brother goes, and, and, Jesus, and, and the father says to him, kill the fattened calf and let's have a party. And the elder brother says, you haven't even given me a goat. And the elder brother is mad because the younger brother didn't work for what he got. And the father says to the elder brother, listen, why are you, listen, my son who is dead is now alive, is lost, now is found. Why don't you party with us? Listen, do you understand that everything I have is yours? And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, why can't you rejoice that your brother who is lost is now found? And they depict, you understand. Okay, now let's do the, let's do the second one. The second one is in Luke chapter 15, verse 8, all in the same chapter. Or what woman, if she had 10 silver coins and lost one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she found it? When she has found it, she rejoices with her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which is lost. In the same way, I tell you that there will be more joy in the presence of angels over uh, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so there's three stories. The first one's the story we, we read about the shepherd who leaves the 99 goes after the one. The last story is about the father who goes out and, 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 and loves on his prodigal son. But the middle story is about a woman. It's a woman who loses a coin. And when she, she, she leaves all the other coins behind and she searches till she finds the coin. And when she finds the coin, she rejoices and she calls all her friends together and says, look, I found the coin I lost. What's the problem with the story? Because who are the coins that aren't lost? The Pharisees. Who's the coin that is lost? The sinner. But who's the woman? God. So you didn't get it, but they did. Jesus just said, God is like a woman who goes out and finds coins that are lost. God is like a woman who goes out and helps sinners who you don't like. God is not just like a man. God's also like a woman. Did you get that? Uh. Does it strike you odd that men were the only ones involved in the crucifixion? Not a single woman took part in his murder. It was a man who betrayed Jesus, male soldiers who arrested Jesus. It was Caiaphas, the high priest, and the scribes and elders who accused him, all men. It was Pilate, the governor, and Herod, the king, who judged him. It was Roman soldiers that beat him, while Roman centurion ordered him to be nailed to the cross. It was male prisoners who cursed him, and it was male soldiers who gambled for his garments. It was male guards who entombed him, and male disciples who denied him. 
It was a woman at Simon's house that poured expensive perfume on his body to prepare him for burial. It was Pilate's wife who had a God-given dream who tried to convince her husband to release Christ. It was, it was, it was his mother Mary and, Mar- and, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene who stayed with him through the dark night of the soul. And there were only two women there on the day of his funeral. And there was one faithful grieving saint there to congratulate him when he beat sin, death, hell, and the grave. And you guessed it, it was a woman. Are we saying that men are bad? No, we're just saying that women are amazing too. We're saying that God loves it all. And that if you take matriarchs away from the patriarchs, you end up with a Vulcan planet. And God says, I love it all. I love the passion. I love, I love it all. Would you stand? If you, there's women around you, would you just lay hands on their shoulders? And if you're watching by Bethel TV and your husband's around, you say, hey, you're supposed to anoint me here, buddy. And I just want to pray right now a covering, not just over our women here, but I want to pray a covering over the women of our nation. I believe that there's an onslaught against our women, and I believe that God wants to cover our women. He wants to commission our women. He wants to empower our women. And I believe this is the season for the matriarchs to stand alongside the patriarchs. Let me put it this way. It was always the season. Now it's the season. It is the season to be jolly. So Lord, we just right now, we just bless these women. And we bless the women watching by Bethel TV and we bless the women of this nation. And Lord, we pray that you would protect them that you would empower them, that you would encounter them. And Father, we thank you that you've made women equally intelligent, equally powerful, but distinctly different. And Lord, we thank you. We celebrate the differences in us. We celebrate the differences in the, in, in the congregation, not just men and women, but different personalities and different ethnic groups and different, different passions and different, different everything. Lord, we love that there's differences. We love that you made flowers, different colors, and you made different kinds of trees. You're, 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 you're the God who's creative, and you love diversity. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to be conformed to be empowered. And Lord, I bless every single person that will hear this message, that you would empower them. Lord, I bless men who are so beautifully empowering women. Lord, I bless the godly, noble men that protect and empower and encourage and, 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 and be like Mordecai's to Esther's. Lord, we just bless what you're doing here in Jesus' name. And we thank you for it. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.